1: Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. We've got a great podcast coming up for you today. It's PMQs. Yes, not Prime Minister's questions, Patrick Maguire questions. I'll be joined by Isabel Harbin and Laura Spirit to answer everything you wanted to know about British politics, but were afraid to ask. But before then, it's time for today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Wednesday, so I'm joined, of course, by Robert Crampton. Hi, Robert. Hi, Patrick. And Alice Thompson is not here, but instead, as is customary when I'm sitting here for Matt shortly, I'm joined by <laughs> Phil Tinline, the historian, broadcaster, author of the Times Political Book of the Year, and Patrick Maguire, radio show regular. How are you, Phil? <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? I'm, very, I'm great. Great to have you, of course. You. Uh, I should say, Phil, last week, and you can listen back to this on the Red Box podcast if you haven't heard it, we discussed why August uh, isn't silly season. Uh, and almost as if to rebuke us for that, there's a a story about a big cat, a panther, uh, prowling uh, the uh, the fields of England in the papers today. So I feel, you know, maybe we were premature in declaring August the most serious month.
2: Uh, Robert, have you ever seen a big cat? No, but, I mean, you could still say it was serious because if it were true (laughs) if it is real then that is actually a proper that's quite an important story is it in Blackburn
1: somewhere like that the Staffordshire Panther
2: oh it's Staffordshire right because we had the the Beast of Bodmin don't we the Beast of Burford I think Uh, your producer was telling me about the Beast of Burford the Beast of Burford Uh, yeah I think I love these stories Uh, they're great to write about
1: you've never been sent in pursuit of a big cat
2: uh, no, not in pursuit of a big cat. I think I do do one thing about a big fox once. They found a 38-pound fox in County Durham. Wow. Which is getting to the stage where you're having to start into worry. What sort of size is that? Like, what, what would you compare it that's to? That's like a pretty big dog. <laughs> really? I mean, Yeah. Because, you know, they say if cats and foxes were our size, they'd yeah. eat us. Well, they, that's sort of getting towards the stage where you kind of want to be... Did you see, yeah. did you see the 38-pound uh, It was dead. Dog. Oh, it was
1: dead. Yeah. They found it. Not at your hand? No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, Phil, ever seen a big cat?
3: Um, not in that sort of context, no. I mean, the thing that struck me about this story is the quite airy way that the documentary maker who apparently found this photograph, this big cat, we don't actually know the <laughs> date of the photograph, weirdly. Um, so that apparently it was quite common until 1976 to keep these as pets. And then the law changed in 1976. You didn't—you had to have a license or whatever. So people just released them into the wild, apparently, uh-huh. which mm-hmm. I didn't know. But the, the, the level of unintended consequences about that law is, to me, and this is very sadly how my brain works, rather like the way that Shirley Williams tried to turn <laughs> the uh, direct grant schools into comprehensives and two-thirds of them went private. So I will yeah. now, every time I think of that, I think of... Uh, Jim Callahan apparently releasing big cats into
2: these—that's <laughs> like alligators in the New York sewage system, isn't it? I think oh, that's yes. a myth. You know, people getting baby alligators and then flushing it does them down the looing. slightly have that caliber, to yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, or pizza-eating turtles. Um, <laughs> course, you know, robbers—they no, you- no, definitely exist. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, yeah, no, they definitely definitely. exist. I've seen do. a film about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that that acclaimed documentary feature. Uh, Phil, I have to say, I'm delighted you mentioned Shirley Williams. Merely two minutes in, this feature is not this segment is not going to disappoint. Uh, right, we've been discussing the silly. Uh, but let's, uh, let's return to the day's big story. Uh, serious things are still happening in Augustville. Inflation, uh, good ish news for Rishi Sunak. It's down, but it's still high. Wages uh, went up yesterday. The Prime Minister declaring there's light at the end of the tunnel.
3: Is it that straightforward? I mean, no, the signals seem to be pointing in two directions at once. I mean, you know, the period for which wages went up yesterday is April to June. These figures are for July. So, you know, we'll see what happens when, when we see yeah. the figures for both periods. But I mean, wages are still behind, you know, uh, price inflation. And there was quite a lot of commentary yesterday that uh, it's in the middle and high range of wage inflation that, that it's actually strongest because it's sort of people paying, companies paying more to retain their staff. you know, mm-hmm. private sector is higher than public sector, etc. So, it still feels like the pressure is ending up on the lower end. So, you know, the the solution to this, you know, apparently is going to be, of course, another rise in, in interest rates of a quarter of a percent. But, you know, that's to try and reduce discretionary spending on things like holidays and so on, which is at the, the top end. But when whether that actually works it depends slightly on whether the banks actually pass it on to savers and people, as people are encouraged to save money instead.
1: Well, before we came on air, you were talking, sharing <laughs> your horror story of paying £13 for two sandwiches. So the inflationary yeah. crisis is not going anywhere.
2: Uh, no, it doesn't seem to be, because uh, the food inflation in particular is you know, about 12, 12 and a half or something. 14.8. 14.8, 14. Really 14. Uh, which is what kind of impacts you on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, I think the energy prices are coming down a bit, which is yeah, that 's the, it, yeah. the main cause yeah. of the uh, of the drop so no i mean, it's yeah it 's good news ish the better than it going up still, but i can 't see this as a sort of launch pad i mean this he 's been talked about a launch pad for uh, Sunak to get back on track in and get to the end of his tunnel in september i can 't see it doing that
1: well, Phil, looking back at history you know, is it possible to draw a straight line between, you know, falling inflation and sort of politicians being rewarded Mm. for it? You know, is is there... But, you know, because the most obvious example we're looking at rising interest rates is what we think of of Black Wednesday and, Mm. and, Mm. you know, people making up their minds that they weren't going to have the Conservative Party Mm. back after that.
3: Well, I mean, if... I mean, I know I talk about this all the time, but if you look at the, and <laughs> Indeed on feel, show. Indeed. Uh, quite a <laughs> propitious period, again, a useful period to compare the one we're in now, possibly the sort of dying end of uh, an orthodoxy. You know, uh, the, the Callaghan government was getting inflation down. You know, mm. it was a lot lower by, you know, 1979. I think it was about 10%. I mean, the Thatcher government then came in and pushed it even lower in, in, with costs that we know. Mm. But you know, it was 25% in 1975. Little good did that do the Labour mm. Party. So yeah, it's a factor, but not the only one.
2: Should I mean, Ken, yeah, Ken Clark's stewardship yes, famously, of, the, yeah. of the economy was pretty good, wasn't it? 1992 to 97. I think it was pretty sensible. Uh, but it didn't make any difference because people made their minds up in 92, right at the beginning of that uh, parliament. Yeah, and uh, the Labour and Party has
1: a lot to thank Ken Clark for, actually. Yeah, it really does indeed.
2: Uh, right, we've been talking about inflation.
1: You know, I think that's uh, not quite what Richard Sunak uh, would like <laughs> to have heard. Uh, but Phil... <laughs> you've been talking you've been talking right about something very different recently general edwin walker yes who is that?
3: <laughs> so, this is this extraordinary character who was uh, a kind of Second World War hero, serves in Korea, looks after prisoners of war's interests, and so on. Um, and he, in 1957, is at this famous, infamous moment uh, in Little Rock, in Arkansas, where nine school children, nine black school children, want to go to school, and a kind of baying mob of segregationists stand in their way. And the National Guard is sent in, they, they, sorry, the 101st Airborne is sent yeah. in, and the commander General Walker to stop them. Uh, and does so successfully. But the problem for Walker, of course, is that he is actually on the side of the segregationist in his head. So he leaves the army, and and when the next big flare-up happens uh, five years later, he's on the other side. Wow. Uh, And so by that point, obviously, he's had to leave the army. But what's really extraordinary about him is, A, that he becomes this sort of potential leader of the sort of far right, but also that there's quite a lot of people in the military at the time who seem to think in a similar way. So in one way, he's a really strong pre-echo of today. The book that I've been reviewing is you know about him as a sort of deep state conspirator. He talks about the control apparatus. He worries about, you know, brainwashing through school textbooks. He worries about the lying media, all this stuff. But the thing that's really striking to me about it is is the, the worries, the nightmares are the same, but actually they're cited in the military, not the politicians. It's the politicians who are solving the problem. Whereas now, actually, it's the politicians people are worrying about. And, you know, when January the 6th happened... Uh, Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was, was sort of saw something like that coming didn't effectively intervene but was you know, quick to clamp down it was the president himself where the yeah. worry lay so there's a curious kind of
1: mix of pre-echo and something actually more frightening now That's really interesting, I mean, he was a target uh, General oh. Edward Walker of an assassination attempt <laughs> by none other than Lee Harvey Oswald yeah, five months before he managed to kill JFK so let's, let's hear uh, Edward Walker now
4: Well, the police from the city came in to investigate a rifle shot that was fired into the house, fired through the west window,
2: and hit the sill and hit the wall across the room and
4: went through the wall over the desk at which I was sitting. Well, there's an enemy within this country, and of course it's the same enemy that uh, represents the position that we should do away with the House Un-American Activities Committee, that we should destroy our local police forces, and that we should uh, do away with our military forces.
2: Mm. The Americans do conspiracy theory much better than us, don't they, Robert? They do. I mean, I was thinking that in terms of the parallels. Uh, I'm not suggesting it wasn't hugely exaggerated, but there was a communist threat at that time. Mm. I mean, it was obviously it was completely warped and exaggerated by McCarthy, but the, you could see that there was... I mean, the ridiculous the stuff about school textbooks and everything is just obviously absurd, but there, were, well, there was, a cold, you know, it was a Cold War and, and that was a hot war in large parts of the globe. Whereas the threat now is, is kind of more or less invented. You know, the idea... Who's, who's, uh, you know, there's some sort of a culture war kind of threat. You know, uh, the, 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 the threat in the mind of the American right, I mean, mm-hmm. is not... Is not in any way... It's not sort of a geopolitical or... Correct. Yeah. You know, I suppose you could talk about China, but uh, what really exercises them is not real. Mm. Uh, it's imaginary. So that's... Uh, I suppose that's good. Uh, <laughs> are, we, are we more immune... It's harder to fight it, ...in yeah. this country, yeah.
1: Phil, to this sort of deep state conspiracy theory? I mean, some... You know, Harold Wilson would, uh, mm. would would object to my you know saying that you know there's a, there's a such a thing as a deep state conspiracy theory, and indeed you know these these uh, you know, complaints about the deep state recur. It's something uh, the far left say about Jeremy um, mm. not Jeremy Corbyn, about Keir Starmer that he has come from the deep state. Oh yeah,
3: I mean we we're definitely not immune from it. I mean I think America has a particular. Version of this, basically, because of its misinterpretation of how much power George III had in 1776, mm. uh, and they sort of see this. You know, I mean, it says in the Declaration of Independence, you know, mm. we have to stop this absolute despotism that George III is plotting for us. George III mm. was not plotting absolute despotism. Yeah. If he had been, he might have won. Hence the Second Amendment <clears> and all the rest. Right, of exactly. From that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So America has a very particular version of it, but we we certainly have a version of it too. Mm. I mean, you know, we're founded on a revolution too. If you go back far enough, you mm. know, in, in some ways, one that also affected America. So you know, we're not that different. I mean, we're both shaped by the 1640s both countries but no I mean we do have a version of it. and you know and you mentioned Wilson I mean Wilson absolutely was thinking this sort of way mm. in the 1970s I mean I made a series Radio 4 earlier in the year about you know how he thought that there was this sort of coalescence of you know figures in MI5 figures in the military and so on you know partly around Rhodesia partly around inflation it's sort of big kind of uh, complicated sort of mulch that comes together from actually disparate stories yeah. Enoch Powell in the same way was talking about the enemy within you know in but 1970
2: we also had David Sterling founder of the SAS running around forming private armies in the, in the 1970s yeah yeah well indeed and, we and, feel uh, like we were talking about that just yeah, last week yeah uh, Oh, God, I wish I'd been here. <laughs> listen I back to it
1: all the <laughs> time. Thank you, back. Robert. You've given me an opportunity to plug the Red Box podcast and you can listen back to that so yeah, whenever are, you like. So,
2: yeah, we are not immune from them. And, of course, the uh, social media has has increased this tenfold, hundredfold. And it's become a... I've found this talking to people. It's become a sort of badge of sophistication to imagine that there is a conspiracy behind everything. So it's in lieu of actually sort of finding out about stuff and educating yourself. People just... There's this sort of cynical... They, cynicism and scepticism has become a kind of badge of intellectualism. You know, oh, of course it's not like that, it's, it's like this, you know? Where is the line, and, though, between... And it's very worrying because uh, there isn't a deep state. There isn't. I mean, there's a few spies around, and, but there's, there's a shallow state and, uh, and it's not very efficient. A ma- state. <laughs> yes. Where, where is the line between sort
1: of clear-eyed analysis of how power works in this country and conspiracy. I suppose that <laughs> line is deeply contested itself.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in one way, I would say it's between scepticism and cynicism. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is that if your view is absolute... You know, that every, exactly as you just said, mm. everything is a trick, everything mm. is connected. That sort of totalism in your thinking is when you start to really tip into this sort of mindset. I mean, what, what the argument I usually make about this is that it's the sort of structure of fiction, you know. If you can write a, mm. a fiction where everything is connected, nothing is as it seems, those sorts of qualities, you've done your job really well.
2: Mm. The problem is when you start doing that as a journalist, yeah. <laughs> and then you're doing fiction as journalism, and yeah. that's conspiracy. i say there's a the difference between The Times and Twitter, you know. That's the difference. That's a pretty good line. Mm. Uh, but the one thing that these things always have in common is a, is a mistrust of the mainstream media, mm. yeah? the old media, which is us. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously I'm going to say they're completely wrong. But they have to say that because we're right and they're wrong. So they have to p- take us on first. Yeah? Interesting. See what I mean? Yeah, I know. I do know what you mean. Uh, so we're always the target. Uh, you always you interview anybody who, and eventually, pretty soon, they will say it's the media, you know, blame the media. Yeah, From Prince Harry and Meghan to whoever. To Donald yeah? Trump. To Donald yeah. Trump. To, and both sides, will,
3: both sides will do it at the same time. Yes. So, you know, during Brexit, you know, the left is saying, you know, the kind of the huge power of the right-wing mm. media is, is yeah. part of, you know, why this happened. And the, the right, once, you know, Brexit is supposedly being thwarted, not necessarily, of course, by any of its own contradictions, but by mm. the blob, you know, there's a, there's a sort of version of that for the right as well. So yeah. these two things can't be, both
1: be true at the same time. Yeah, and the, indeed, it always, the quote I always come back to when people are talking about you know, sort of nefarious deep state actors uh, is Dominic Cummings's description of getting into government, thinking yeah. he'd find the room with the ninjas that went yeah. really around yeah. the country, and you yeah. realise well, there exactly. are no, yeah. there is that, no room, and there are yeah. no ninjas. I was thinking
2: that during Brexit, when we were, when the Brexit negotiations were, we were just the, the Brussels was just running running rings. I was thinking, where's Sir Humphrey? You know, mm-hmm. where's the person who's going to make this all right? You know, the the the, the, the clever person who is who knows what's Who's going to defend the national interest in a kind of Machiavellian way? And they just they don't. It wasn't yeah. there. The Bosnian <laughs>
1: people are ask, asking for you know Ken Clark to come
2: and <laughs> yeah. parachute
3: <The> in, parachute per- <laughs> in and save everyone. The person we actually have to blame for all of this is John McCarrick.
1: Yeah, uh, because <laughs> I think I was going to mention Hollywood actually, but
3: God, right. yeah. But this is where this is where the phrase "the deep state" comes yeah. from. It comes from a John le Carré novel, yeah. uh, and what he's actually talking about is the sort of semi privatization of intelligence and yeah. so on. And yeah. it, it sort of it's picked up by a guy called Mike Lofgren who's this quite mild man at Eisenhower-style Republican uh. in a book uh, to- talking about how American democracy is being taken
2: but over this way. Then. And then Trump nixed it. And Eisenhower yeah. himself talked about the military-industrial he complex, did, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. But I would say Hollywood because I can't I can't remember a Hollywood thriller. Uh, in the last 25, 30 years that didn't end up with it being a rogue faction within the CIA who were to blame for everything. Yeah? Mm. Think of that film Enemy of the State with Will Smith, yeah? It's a, there's always a kind of uh, John Voigt figure sitting in a room beyond a room, yeah? Who's... A, who's Fixing everything, and kind of killing senators, and and it's sort, you know, and it's all the meeting with generals and starting the Vietnam War, JFK, all the rest of it. What well, you and that, It's all nonsense. Well, uh, is it all nonsense yet, I,
1: because you look back
2: through history? For the most part, I don't take,
1: Services have gone up to some pretty shady stuff. over Yeah, but you the years take one percent,
2: one percent of what the American, what the CIA did. for instance, there's a great mm. speech in JFK by Donald Sutherland where he goes through the whole history of post uh, post-war American. And some of it, yeah, some of it's true. <laughs> Cuba and all the all that stuff, but only a little bit of it, and it didn't really wasn't very efficient. A whole chapter from my next book. It's less than five minutes
1: now until kickoff in the Women's World mm. Cup semi-final between England and Australia. The times is Poppy Cronker is an Aussie run sports bar in London. Hi, mm-hmm. Poppy.
4: Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm
1: very good. How's the atmosphere?
4: It's brilliant here. The tables are filling up. Um, every single table is booked out, so we are having to stand. It's quite a friendly atmosphere. They've got both Australian and English flags on the bar. And, yeah, the all-Australian bar staff is very excited for the match. Well, I was going to say, yeah,
1: you should say you're at Belushi's, which is attached to an Australian hostel with Aussie staff. Are you, do you feel like you're a minority?
4: I do. Do you know what? There's more people in Australian colours here than there are in English ones. <laughs> and there's quite a few, you know, accents more Australian accents than English ones around. No, That's th- definitely true.
1: I, I mean, if any Australians are listening, indeed, we've got an Australian producer <laughs> on the show, will reprimand me for saying, uh, you know, people in Australia don't actually drink Fosters. But are people on the, <laughs> the Fosters in Belushi's already?
4: You know what? I haven't taken note. I've had to go outside because it's a little bit quieter. But um, I will be finding that out for you.
1: Uh, but will people, you know, it is it quite boozy inside?
4: Yes, it is. Lots of times coming in, lots of people getting on it. That is the least
1: surprising thing I've heard. (laughs) Uh, World Cup semi-final between England and Australia, and people are drinking in the morning. I'm shocked. Uh, Robert, you've uh, written about women's football in this tournament recently.
2: Yeah, I wrote about it after the game, uh, the 0-0 with Nigeria, which was, uh, sorry, it was, yes, it was was, 0-0, and then it went to penalties, uh, saying that... uh, what a good game it was, even though it was nil-nil. It can be, you can still have a cracking game when it's nil-nil. And uh, how contested... Because I've heard this kind of... They, accept, they receive wisdom from a lot of men, and these are men who are kind of friends of mine, so mm. therefore I hope reasonable, decent chaps, is that, oh, yeah, it's great, really, the skill level's gone up, blah, blah, but it's basically a different game, isn't it? Yeah, in, in terms of lack of physicality and so forth. And I thought uh, it's basically condescending. Uh, And I thought the England-Nigeria game kind of gave the lie to that. Uh, It was was a pretty physical match and uh, I wrote saying it's time to, you know, give a... I mean, this has been written before and uh, the women's game is due. Have you been watching it in your house? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, my daughter and wife are very keen on it and uh, it's an enormous... I think it's a a huge... uh, I mean, it's... goes without saying it's an enormous bonus for women I mean it makes you think really when all those years of the sports page is being totally dominated by men's sports and you think well why was that because that really was kind of a bit unfair mm. uh, and now that uh, that is less the case that's got to be a good thing well the national anthems have just been sung uh, in
1: uh, in Sydney uh, Poppy did you hear a big blast of Advance Australia Fair just then
4: yeah I was about to say did you hear all of the cheers as they came on there was um <laughs> Yeah, quite a few weeps in the room, everyone's very excited to hear that, and everyone's glued to the screens now, sort
5: of gathering around.
1: Well, I'll let you dry your tears and head back inside, Poppy Karonka, (laughs) Times reporter. Phil, I should say you've not followed football since the 1982 Men's World Cup. (laughs) Uh, Will you make an exception today? Um, or you'd be heading back to the British Library. Uh, I may possibly be doing the latter, yeah. I mean, I've
3: done far too much of my life worrying about political nightmares and Shirley Williams and comprehensive <laughs> schools. It's very sad, I know. But, um, you know, suffice to say, this seems to me, from a, you know, a, a passing distance, to be absolutely brilliant. And anything that can kind of take some of that, you know, mm. horrible condescension out of mm. it, you
2: know, fantastic. You should have kept going because we started getting a bit better after 82. <laughs> Got to the quarterfinal in 86. I just in
3: pa- Paolo, Paolo Rossi and Dino's offer just etched in my yeah, Oh, Paolo
2: Rossi, <laughs>
1: Yeah, everybody remembers their first World Cup. The first World Cup mm. I remember. Mine was 2002. I in my so. head,
2: Ireland, oh, yeah. are, Ireland are a good football team. 74. 74. Wow. Germany, yeah, Cruyff, yeah, Germany, Holland. Oh, ah, of course. But, yeah, I cried. Did, did you? Well, yeah, because the Dutch receive was, was a romantic thing, wasn't it? But you're it? such a hard man. I know, and now I think I love Gerd Muller. He's my favourite footballer ever, so... And were,
1: uh, England, were England not in that one? No, didn't right. qualify.
2: Yeah. Didn't qualify in first. 74 or 78. That's
1: right. Yeah. Don Revy. Mm. Early person who went and take, took Gulf Gold, wasn't yes, he, Don first buddy? one, yeah. That was Robert Crampton and Phil Tinline. Remember, you can read Robert in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk to get yourself a subscription. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio.
3: Put on a proper suit, do up your tie and sing the national anthem.
4: What a good idea. <laughs> I am a fighter and not a quitter. Weak, weak,
3: weak. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks, I'm saying, with Captain
1: crash snooze-fest. I've got a question from Stephen. Shut
4: up a minute.
1: Uh, It's 11 o'clock on a Wednesday, so normally we'd be eagerly looking forward to hearing Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer uh, exchange something approximating to questions and answers in the Commons Chamber. But we're deep into parliamentary recess. So no PMQs this week. Or is there? Order,
0: order, I call Patrick Maguire.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mr Speaker, for our big thing today. We're doing our very own PMQs. Yes. Patrick Maguire's questions. You see what we did there. You can put any burning questions you've always had, but have been afraid to ask, to me. And more usefully, our expert panel in the t- in the shape of Times Red Box editor Laura Spirit. Hi, Laura.
4: Hi, Patrick.
1: And our political commentator Isabel Harman. Hello, Isabel. Hi there. Uh, they both join me now, uh, and I wanted to ask you both: Does the nation miss PMQs when well, it's not here, Laura? <laughs> Particularly in its new iteration of. People not saying anything at all.
6: I miss I miss PMQs when it's not here. But I think I'm probably I'm probably among very few exceptions.
1: To,
6: <laughs> what do you think? Do you miss
1: it? Uh, do I miss it?
6: Um, n- yes,
1: <laughs> for professional reasons. Isabel, I mean, you you opened the legendary burn book of terrible backbench questions. I mean, so you miss <laughs> you you must miss it. You, you know, the attempt to sh- uh, the opportunity to shame people.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing I live for, uh, just being really mean about backbenchers trying to get better jobs. Um, I think there is a sort of deep emptiness in the nation at the moment as a result of uh, there being no Prime Minister's questions. And it's funny, actually, because it it does create a sort of pivot for the rest of the week, doesn't it? Uh, And I always think, for some reasons, Wednesdays in Parliament are always incredibly busy, even though actually it's just a half-hour session where people make strange noises at each other and then go off. And, uh, the whole, does...
1: and the whole of the sort of first half of the week for the Prime Minister and the Leader of Opposition, I mean, Keir Starmer in particular, I know in his early days, was basically spend Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday fretting about Prime Minister's questions. Less so now, he's more experienced. But, you know, it dominates almost an entire day of the Prime Minister and, and the Leader of Opposition's time, doesn't it? Despite being half an hour. Yeah.
4: Yeah, it does. And it's something that prime ministers never really get back comfortable with doing and nor should they really, because it's, you know, it's supposed to be a kind of bare pit of scrutiny. I remember talking to David Cameron not long before he stopped being prime minister, not out of choice, I have to say. But he um, he was saying that he still felt sick before he went in and always thought, oh, my God, why am I doing this again? Uh, which shows that it's, it is a very intense session uh one where you can trip yourself up quite easily david cameron's weakness was that he uh, often went quite pink lost his temper and said something a bit unpleasant sometimes even about his own side and it's it's really that uh, that pressure chamber where the weakness of a leader will very quickly uh, become apparent now i think the weaknesses of our of our two political leaders at the moment uh, are largely that they're both quite boring um, <laughs> but um but but you know that you do still see rishi sunak will get a bit too energized he'll seem a bit like he's had too many espressos out of his expensive coffee cup um and and will make what is actually just a really terrible joke um that he then looks really proud of
1: yes looking very very pleased with himself Uh, right that's our primer on what we're missing but what we're going to give you is even more interesting uh Prime Minister's questions. Not Prime Minister's questions. Pasture requires questions. We've had loads of questions thus far. Uh, I'll ease you in uh, with one about the b- day's biggest story. Nothing to do with politics. Uh, will the Lionesses win? To save me the agony of watching, says Sarah Pye. Lara?
6: Of course they'll win.
1: Very good. <laughs> Impeccably our message. Uh, Isabel?
4: Yes, uh, we've got a crisis in our house. We live in Scotland and uh, we were going to decorate our house with England flags, <laughs> a Emily Thornberry. But weirdly, our England flags have gone missing in the post and I suspect a plot.
1: You suspect, you know, I'd, I, sorry, far be it from me to accuse hardworking postmen in Scotland or otherwise of a lack of professionalism. But I suspect, you know, maybe there's a deep... We were talking about the deep state just now, but maybe, you know, maybe that's the SNP's deep state, uh, you know, Trying to fulfill yeah, its, its own. Probably uh, for the
0: best.
1: Yeah, probably for the best. They're probably doing you a favor, a charitable <laughs> gesture. Uh, so, Sarah Pye. They will save you the agony of watching. The Lionesses are going to win. And if there is a goal, uh, we will let you know. Still nil-nil. But right, let's talk about politics instead. Uh, David Shaughnessy in Soham gets in touch. Uh, Good morning, Patrick. My question is, when did the Bank of England stop sending letters to the Prime Minister explaining why they missed the 2% target on inflation? Were they ever made public? And who and when did they stop happening Uh, and why? Uh, David, I can tell you they actually are uh, public, uh, the letters between uh, the Chancellor and uh, the Bank of England. Uh, If you just go on the gov.uk website, uh, HMT, open letters between the Governor of the Bank of England and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, every time the inflation target is missed, um, the Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England exchange letters. Uh, So, there you go. That's a very simple answer to your question. Not much shame attached to it, though, Isabel, missing this inflation target. You know, back in the day, those exchanges of letters would have been, you know, the, the Bank of England under huge pressure... Now, it seems that the target basically doesn't exist.
4: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they're, they're just not worth reporting anymore because they have to happen so regularly. But what is interesting is the way in which Downing Street Prime Minister talk about the Bank of England more generally. We obviously had that huge wobble uh, when Liz Truss was threatening the independence of the Bank of England during her short tenure and it's something that Rishi Sunak has been very very careful not to go anywhere near mm. in terms of appearing to threaten its independence or indeed really criticize the Bank of England even though if you talk to Tory MPs they'll say you know the bank was was very slow to deal with uh, warnings of um, rampant inflation uh, and that actually Um, You know, some of the actions of the Monetary Policy Committee have not been helpful. You never get that line uh, from Downing Street uh, at all because there is that anxiety about returning to the the market uh, worries of the trust era.
1: Well, you do hear that sort of frustration privately from Tory MPs and people in Number 10, don't you, Lara? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
4: you
6: do. And I think um, this whole cycle of letters and figures is obviously... Uh, only of a particular use when, as you say, it's newsworthy if you miss a target. And obviously that 2% target I don't think is forecast to be met again until late 2025, so we would be in for many more public series of letters. But it is Rishi Sunak in many ways by making it one of his, if not the biggest flagship priority of his five priorities, one could argue, um, a big thing in the news. That every month we eagerly await these inflation statistics, and that's not necessarily something that news editors alone are obsessed with. That's something that is also being driven by Number 10 and their own obsession with inflation. Some Tory MPs would say and uh, you know. An overly, um, an overly anxious obsession with inflation at the expense of what they might like to see, i.e. tax cuts, uh, other kind of, you know, content, like, you know, coalitions of people, like public sector workers might also say an overemphasis on that compared to other things or at least that it is being used in some sense as a possible excuse uh, for making decisions that they might otherwise want. So I think you're right to say that, <coughs> excuse me, that, uh, you know, these letters aren't necessarily all that newsworthy anymore, but it is interesting that they're public because uh, I, I didn't actually know that they were they were still made
1: public. Still mate, good public service. Yeah, as ever, you can find almost anything you want to know about British politics on the gov.uk website, <laughs> if you look hard enough. Uh, often, um, not they don't make it easy for you, gov.uk, but it's all there. Uh, right, thank you to David Shaughnessy in Soham. I hope you've answered, uh, we've answered that question. Uh, let's go to our first caller, Tony Reid, uh, who's getting in touch from London. Hi, Tony.
5: Hello, Patrick,
1: how are you? Uh, very well. All the better for hearing from you this morning, Tony. Uh, feel free to ask us your pmq
5: okay so i I tweeted yesterday so basically given the state of the government at the moment the pressure and expectation for a labor to win is climbing but an 80 seat majority to overhaul is still a big ask so my question is what happens if labor don't win given the expectations that they will or even if they don't form a majority government at the next election I'm particularly looking at the, you know, the fallout from the three by-elections a couple of weeks ago where mm. Rishi lost two seats that you know, had 20,000-plus majorities or whatever, but the entire focus was all about, and I agree you, Les, played a part in that seat, but the entire focus was, well, Labour should be winning, and are we in a situation where they may not win? And what happens to the Labour Party if they don't?
1: What do you think, Isabel? Because that's a really interesting question. And, you know, there's almost two questions there. One, what happens to the Labour Party if they don't manage to win? That's partly a question of expectation management. But two, would it really matter if Keir Starmer led a minority government after the next election?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is almost the, the warning that Keir Starmer keeps making to his own party that Labour... Might not win that it's it's not actually nailed on the victory at all, and uh, we all know the word that he uses, complacency. Uh, he's always warning his front bench against this, and actually, when you talk to front benchers, a lot of them are really, really anxious uh, that the poll lead that the Labour Party have is. is very soft and that it's really more based on a rejection of the Tories and a frustration with an exhaustive party that's been in government for you know, too long uh, by some uh, appearances and uh, than it is on uh, Labour looking particularly appealing. Uh, and so there's a push within Labour for Starmer to uh you know set out more of his stall, be more radical. And you do sometimes see him him doing that uh on certain policy areas. He, you know, particularly thinks that, that health is one of those areas where he can be quite um or he can push for a more radical agenda. Um but there is still a chance that you could end up in a in a hung parliament. And we were talking about this on on the programme last week, weren't we? About the possibility of Labour doing some kind of deal or not with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, so it is something that that is a concern it's never the case before an election that you should be making assumptions about that result I mean the the last time we did have that kind of election was 2017 we assumed there was going to be a Tory majority and And a very big one like that yeah yeah a very big Tory majority and in fact Theresa May lost the majority that she'd uh, gone into the election trying to increase so uh, I think generally when we go in with confidence about a result, we tend to get a, a very different one. So I think, you know, that the general view amongst Labour is that there's still a, a huge amount more to do just to get the brand into a place where uh, it feels like there's a, you know, a cause to play ream Things can only get better.
1: And I would say, Tony, you know, if Labour don't win the next election, And I'd say, look, even if the Labour Party is saying they're not complacent, uh, et cetera, et cetera, I'd say the expectation in the Labour Party is that they will almost certainly form some sort of minority government at the very least at the next election. Um, But if they didn't even do that, I think all bets would be off as to the state of the Labour Party. Because the entire argument that Keir Starmer has made since he took over from Jeremy Corbyn was that this is the only way to win, to sort of throw everything throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were, after the Corbyn years and sort of return to that those sort of Blairite orthodoxy. So if he doesn't do that, then the reaction within the Labour Party, you know, not every single one of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters has left. The, the left are still in historical terms pretty well organised and if not necessarily strong within the Labour Party at the minute. So the reaction to that in terms of the internal politics of the Labour Party would be really, really unpredictable. I mean, do you agree, Laura? I mean, you know, listening to Isabel there... You know, Labour very keen to say it's not a foregone conclusion. But I guess an answer to Tony's question is almost, you know, is there is it is there still a not negligible likelihood that Labour won't win the next election, or are we sort of, you know, is it a done deal?
6: Well, it's interesting. Sometimes when you talk to uh, some senior Tories, very often they will quite despairingly say, come back to me in X amount of time and see if anything's changed. I think there was a sense that perhaps these themed weeks over uh, summer, obviously last week, uh, the small boats week, this week, the healthcare week might do something to shift the dial. I think it now is probably regarded that that assumption might be slightly naive. I think the poll lead that we're seeing you know, consistently above 20 points is... Asking for something pretty dramatic to come in its way, but actually, some of the more optimistic conservatives will say, "Look, if Rishi Sunak does, and today's inflation figures suggest it's not, it's not impossible that he does. If he meets his inflation target, uh, if they are able to persuade some people in the public that that, that classic line around the uh, around you know labour mismanagement of the economy and nervousness around labour, or if there is something that happens between now and the election, then of course it's possible. But I think the more incredible concern that a number of people have or that they want to talk about more is as you say that question of a minority government and what happens in uh, in that scenario people quite keen to uh, to talk about the 1964 election in that sense that actually
1: 1964 the 1966 after, of course after
6: so-called 13 wasted years so obviously with uh, with a, a, a pretty analogous comparison uh, they would some labor people would say to now uh, you know Howard Wilson was actually forced on the back of a very poor inheritance di- uh, economic inheritance deal to hold an election relatively soon after that again because because the minority government had proved so unworkable. So, I think in that situation, you can see that if you're looking at history, there are these precedents for, uh, you know, Labour can come in on a minority government. It is very difficult to get some things done, and voters will be looking at Labour. I think this is a nervousness when you talk to some people to turn the economy around. That's a very, very difficult thing to do.
1: Tony Reid in London, what do you make of all of that?
5: But, and, and I, I, it's all about expectation. 80 seats is not an insignificant mountain that has to be climbed. Mm from even before a vote is cast. And there seems to be a bit of a, not a mismatch, but in terms of the expectation, 20 point leads, 180 seat majorities. I just think there's a slight perception that Labour will win, but nobody's maybe looking at the size of the mountain that has to be overcome. You know, there's the red wall seats. You want to win those back. He may, Starmer may win 20, 25 in Scotland, which would help, but I just think yeah, like like it's about maybe he is clearly Starmer is going steady and slow and keeping his powder dry and stuff like that. But I do think that the, the perception of Labour, you ask anybody in the street, for example, mm. who's the next prime minister going to be, it'll be Keir Starmer. But is it that such a done deal? Is there a situation where he may win a minority government in the end of 24, 25 and then goes again six months later to yeah, try and reinforce the chaotic Tory opposition. I'd say, to Tony, that is, something,
1: that is something Labour politicians, several members of the Shadow Cabinet have cited the example of Wilson winning narrowly in 64 then going again in 66 and I think you you may well be onto something there. Uh, and expectation management, you make a very, very good point as well. Labour have a huge mountain to climb um, and I'd say most people are not yet convinced. Uh, they can or definitely will do it thanks to tony reed in london for that excellent question now it's time to hear from mary picken in glasgow hi mary good morning uh, what's your question
4: my question is, with Nadine Doris in mind, is there nothing that Parliament or the Prime Minister can
5: do if a member of Parliament simply refuses to show up to work?
1: So Nadine Doris, of course, said she was resigning as the considered MP for Mid-Bedfordshire in June with immediate effect. She hasn't yet done that because she's trying to find out why she didn't get a peerage, as she was promised by Boris Johnson. And uh, she hasn't spoken in Parliament for over a year uh, and uh, her voting record is is similarly uh, similarly patchy. Uh, Isabel, is there any mechanism to kick out an MP who just doesn't turn up?
4: There is. It's 200 years old and it's something that Chris Bryant, uh, Labour MP, Chair of the Standards Committee, Uh, is threatening to use Uh, he happened across this rule whilst researching his latest book Um, and I think the way it works is that you have to um, pass a motion that requires uh, the MP to attend or speak within six months or um, they get turfed out Um, so it's obviously not been used for a very long time um and um it, it events may overtake it but it, it shows that there is a, a push from some bits of um uh, the house of commons to uh, t- to deal with this uh, there's obviously quite a lot of by-elections uh, in the offing there's the Rutherglen and Hamilton by-election that's followed um at Margaret Ferrier's very long case um of uh, flouting lockdown rules and then there's another member um Uh, who is uh, the Conservative MP um, uh, Bob Roberts, who um, has refused to stand down and and so is now an independent Mm. that continues to be the MP and continues to ask questions in the Commons. I mean, he is present still, unlike Nadine Dorries.
1: Uh, Laura, why, given that Nadine Dorries isn't turning up, she's no friend of Rishi Sunak, that, um, that goes without saying, why hasn't Rishi Sunak, say, I don't know, suspended her from the whip? Given that she's sort of not turning up. If he's not, if, you know, if it's not straightforward to chuck somebody out, why is, why doesn't Nadine Doris still have the Tory whip given how vociferously she criticises the Prime Minister and, and number 10?
6: Yeah, on the one hand, you might say there's no love lost between those two individuals, and I think you'd be correct. But on the other hand, the uh, behaviour or the strategy of Rishi Sunak and his number 10 over uh, the wider peerages question and the specific question of Nadine Dorries' denied uh, peerage has been one of extreme caution and the hope of basically trying to wash their hands of it completely and to say these aren't matters of us, they've been decided elsewhere, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, even when this kind of question of, uh, the looming question of deferred peerages and uh, their institutional appropriateness had been facing them for quite some time. Uh, So I don't think given that Rishi Sunak seems pretty risk averse has wanted to uh, minimise conflict with his uh, backbenchers as much as possible uh, that he would want to kind of wade into this more actively than otherwise there's not a huge amount of political cost arguably for him waiting for Nadine Dorries. arguably although it's been reported that she wants to wait for this by-election to be as damaging as possible for the government it might well have been more damaging yet for her to have had her by-election on the same day as the uh, the previous two and indeed her majority similar size to that that was uh, that was lost to Labour in Selby when Nigel Adams, uh, another of those MPs, uh, stood down. So it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure there's a huge amount uh, of incentive necessarily for Rishi Sunak to intervene in this regard. But of course there are a number of angry constituents who have made their views known quite publicly about the fact that Nadine Dorries doesn't seem to be representing them currently.
1: Uh, Mary Picken in Glasgow, does that give you any hope that Nadine Dorries is, uh, is going to go any, of anything other than her own accord?
4: Uh, Not a tremendous amount, no. And I think the question that remains in my mind is why why there isn't a mechanism and why we're not bringing Parliament up to date with some new rules that would deal with this. I mean, if I had failed to turn up to my job with no good reason, I wouldn't have lasted.
1: And what's really interesting is that local councils have a similar rule. If you don't show up to a council meeting for six months uh, without a... Compelling, mitigating circumstance. Mm. They just take the, they take your seat off you. Uh, so maybe that's something Parliament could look at. Mary Pickett in Glasgow. Thanks very much for that question. Uh, right, let's uh, look at the inbox and see what else you've asked. Sarah, uh, in North London, appropriately, given what she's asked, is there any data as to what happened politically to the diehard Corbynites who flocked into the party under Jeremy Corbyn when he became leader? They can't have all been expelled for anti-Semitism. I think a significant number now vote Green. But there are there any numbers on that? If they all hate. Security, Keir Starmer so much, how will they vote at the next election? A couple of interesting questions there, Isabel. The first is about the Labour Party membership, and I would probably say to that, look, you know, the numbers have come down, it's sort of, you know, they've lost a you know good 100,000 or so members since Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so clearly, you know, the the membership is higher than it was before Jeremy Corbyn, but lower than under Jeremy Corbyn. So there are still some what you would call Corbynites or left-wingers in the Labour Party membership. But I think the second question Sarah Dietsch has asked there is really, really interesting, which is, is Jeremy Corbyn, uh, is Keir Starmer rather, going to face an electoral challenge from his left? He's focused so relentlessly on Tory voters. But, you know, are the Greens, left-wing independents, going to cause him some trouble at the margins, maybe?
4: Yeah, this is really interesting. And one of the fascinating things is the reaction of those around Keir Starmer to falling membership figures. You'd expect this to be a source of embarrassment to a party. But instead, over the past few years, as the membership numbers have, as you say, dropped uh, by some hundred thousand, there's been a sense of relief because uh, the view is that actually these people will never labour anyway. And it's better to have them outside of the party where they can't uh, do as as much damage uh, within individual local parties. So you know, during the Corbyn years, you didn't just have the the you know the dominance of the of the Corbynites within the national party structures. You also have within uh, CLPs, constituency Labour parties, uh, often. Uh, a Corbynite majority or at least some very noisy Corbynites who, for anyone who wasn't hundred percent behind Corbyn made life extremely difficult. Uh, Now you can actually see the the reverse in some local parties. Um, So that's really interesting in terms of where they go uh, as voters. That's another really interesting question about how far uh, tactical voting goes even amongst the sufficiently politically engaged to have joined a political party. Are they so annoyed with Keir Starmer that they might actually risk splitting the votes uh, within their? own constituencies and you know the vote green uh, potentially bring in a a different party uh, by taking the taking away from the Labour vote or would they hold their nose when it comes to a general election and vote Labour it may well depend on who the local Labour candidate is in particular but I think it's a really interesting question uh, how much does Keir Starmer annoy the left he's really taken delight in you know making a point of not being Jeremy Corbyn's friend not inviting him to his birthday party and and not letting him go back into um, uh, the Labour Party Mm. at all Uh, so does that Does that antagonise people? Is that necessary to win back other voters um, who are more centrist? It's a really interesting question.
1: It is a really interesting question. Thanks very much for Sarah Deitch in North London. Uh, Lara, I'm going to give you the final question. This one's from Archie Earle, uh, given you're a bit of a policy nut. Listeners may not know that about you. Uh, Do you think uh, UBI, universal basic income, could work in Britain which party do you think would be most likely to adopt the idea on a policy platform? You know, you've heard people like Andy Burnham suggest this might be an answer, but sort of no major party leader has picked this one up. Why is that and could it ever work?
6: Uh, the reason for that is it is extremely expensive. Not just that it's extremely expensive; it'd be, I would think, estimates have put it upwards of three percent of GDP. So
1: universal basic income is where everybody gets a sum of money, even if they're in work.
6: Yes, and the the idea is that it's supposed to sort of cover people's basic needs, and that over time they will contribute uh, more in uh, in in work and in productivity than they they otherwise would have done, having to uh, having to face the difficulties that they would otherwise have faced. Uh, there is also the added question, the added case made by some of its proponents that uh, the political case that actually it's fairer and it uh, it is in part kind of an ideological challenge that uh, some on the left uh, pose to uh, those on the more centre of it. But yeah, the full cost that people have estimated is £67 I think if you look at, if you're going to ask yourself, would Labour back that policy in a situation where they're refusing to, uh, they're saying that, Keir's saying he won't, uh, you know, lift that uh, two child, that cap on two child benefits at the cost of £1.4 for fear of looking like, uh, you know, he wasn't being sensible with funding. I think you would see how how vanishingly unlikely it is that the Labour Party would champion that any time soon. I think it's Antithetical uh, to a number of uh, leading lights in the Conservative Party, and it wouldn't be championed by them either. There is a limited uh, program running in Wales, if I'm not mistaken, at the moment, which with is not care
1: leavers. Yes,
6: so 1,600 pounds a month with care leavers. There are a couple of charities, I think, in the UK uh, and in England, who are running very limited trials of this. But we have seen trials before, and it's I think uh, even if they come out with limited, uh, you know, cases of limited success, uh, it's it's extremely unlikely that we would see it uh, but... that we would see it in the UK anytime soon.
1: That was. Laura Spirit and Isabel Harbour. Remember, you can get Laura in your inbox every morning at 8:30 if you sign up to our Redbox newsletter. times.co.uk slash redbox. That's what we got time for today. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcast from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport.